Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, welcome to Advent here at Rosewood Church. My name is Austin Vondracek. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood, and uh, I'm just, I'm grateful to be a part of a church that, um, that uh, uh, celebrates Christmas in a way that just kind of warms my heart with the carols and the songs and some of the, the classic music in which we join our voices with, with literally hundreds of years uh, of Christian singing and celebrating and, and worship uh, through the songs that we sing around Christmas uh, and Advent. So thank you to our choir. Uh, they'll be back again in two weeks, and they're bringing an orchestra with them. Uh, and then our kids' choir will be uh, leading us in worship next week. And of course, thank you to our band uh, and to Lindsay, who are so faithful week after week. Uh, last week, as we started off Advent, our first week of Advent, we talked about what the Bible means by darkness. And if, if Jesus is the light of the world born on Christmas Day, then it's important that we understand what that light means and also that we understand what the opposing force of darkness also represents and how we kind of translate it today. Uh, and, and today we're going we're gonna to take all this discussion of darkness and light and we're going to bring it even closer to home as we look at the story from Matthew 2 of King Herod. Uh, all right, so we're going to be reading from Matthew 2. The words will be up this, on the screen, which will be even more helpful uh, since we are not going to, we're going to, we're going to read like a severely chopped up version of Matthew 2. And the reason for that is because there are multiple kind of stories crisscrossing through Matthew 2, through the, 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 the birth story of Jesus. In order to really understand Herod and the part that he plays in understanding Christmas and Advent uh, and the way that he intersects with Jesus, it's just a little easier to kind of pull him out. So you'll be able to see where we are. Uh, on, uh, uh, on the screen and, and where we are in the verses as we look at, uh, at, at darkness personified with King Herod. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Then Herod called the Magi and secretly found out uh, from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then, uh, he, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I can kill him. I, I mean, so I may go and worship him. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up. He said, take the child and, your mother and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for and kill uh, him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning in Judea in in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So, that the, so, so was fulfilled uh, what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. You know, nowadays people talk, about, um, people talk about life today as if we're, kinda, we're living in like the darkest time of human history, like the, 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 um, the lowest point of, of suffering and injustice and godlessness. And, and while certainly suffering, injustice, and godlessness exist in this world, in this community, uh, it, to say that it's the worst, well, that's not for me to judge, but you look at this account of Jesus's life and what was happening during Jesus's time and the kinds of things that Jesus and his parents had to, to suffer through and maneuver around just to keep Jesus alive. I'd rather, I'd rather be alive right now, frankly, because uh, the scene, you know, the scene quickly changes. We've got like our, our nativity scene set up in our homes, so many of us, right? So you think of like the classic nativity scene, and that scene exists for the most part, but it quickly turns to a story of deception and fear and murder and homelessness and immigration, and, and it was certainly a time of darkness. There's no doubt about it. Of course, when I, say, when I say darkness, both now and then, I'm referring to the two things that we talked about last week. We let, last week, we looked at darkness as evil and ignorance. Now, that's not my language. That's the language of the prophets and the, old, and the New Testament writers who, when they referred to darkness, they were not referring to the time of day. They were talking about, for one, the evil that exists in the world, the, the very universal human reality that things are not as they should. Uh, that something, something's off, to put it as graciously as possible. But as Christians, we would understand it through the words of Scripture that it's evil. And then also that we live in ignorance. We are in the dark about how to solve it. After all, if someone, literally anyone, could fix the evil, they would have. And now certainly people will try, and people have tried, and they've spent their whole lives trying, but this gets to why we need Christ, the light of the world, to chase away the darkness. So there's little debate about the presence of evil and the fact that we haven't figured out how to solve it all yet under our own strength. However, we start to get to disagreement when we ask this question of ourselves, where does evil come from? You ask that, and now answers begin to change. In fact, the answers become wildly different when you talk to folks about where evil comes from. Just for instance, uh, for some people, they would say that evil comes from a class of people, the poor, the rich. For some, they would centralize evil as originating or, or, or kind of spewing from or represented by a country in the world or a region in the world. Others would say that evil is personified in a single person. Others, a religion, maybe all religion or just 
somebody else's religion as being that which is evil. And then maybe some like a political party, right? The, the, the left is evil, the right is evil, and so the other has to, has to fight that. And so you get the, this sense of like cosmic battle within, uh, <laughs> within politics. But here's the thing, they're, they're all different, and there's more that we can add to it. But what they all have in common is that they're all pointing, right? Everyone's pointing. Where is the evil? It's out there. It's, it's him, it's her, it's that, it's them, right? What we all have in common is that we point, that we, that we locate evil outside of ourselves so often and within another person or another group. Take into account uh, the, the, well, Matthew's account. You look at, at that story, you'd say, where is, is darkness located? Well, it's, it, you would say it's located in the person of Herod, a, of a person who's an unjust ruler, he's abusing his power, and he's trying to kill a whole bunch of kids out of a rumor of one kid from people that are strangers. That's Herod. He's a psychopath. Is he dar- does darkness originate in him? Well, my goal today, and ultimately Matthew's goal by including this account of Herod in the gospel, is to kind of shed some light on the truth of darkness by challenging our instinct to simply point and, and to challenge the thought that evil is something that, that exists exclusively out there. Instead, that evil is in every human heart. And that Herod's reaction to the news of a new king is actually a picture of us all at the news of Christ's kingship brought to light on Christmas morning. Now, if you thought last week didn't seem like a very Christmassy message, this one's going to feel even less like a Christmassy message, okay? Because it's not. It's not Christmas yet. It's Advent. During Advent is a season of preparing our hearts for the coming king. Preparing our hearts for Christmas. And this is entirely a preparation message. So, let's get into it here. There's, um, there's something very simple about kings and monarchies. Now, we don't have any around here anyway. The most we know is by watching The Crown, right? But, but beyond that, uh, here is one thing that we all intuitively know about monarchies, which is that you can only have one king, okay? So, if, if you're the king or the queen and someone comes in wanting to be the king or the queen, one of you has to submit or be beaten. Kings and queens, they don't share thrones real well. Jesus' claim of authority as God is a claim of kingship and rule in our lives, and nothing can share the throne of God. Uh, Jesus puts it like this. He says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't being literal in in application, okay? There there are plenty of verses to contradict a literal application of this, that, that, that you don't have to, as a follower, hate your brothers and sisters and just anyone who's important to you and, and, and valuable to you, that you, you have to hate those people. However, he is being literal in interpretation, okay? That, that allegiance to a king cannot be shared, not even by the most important people and things in our life. And if that kind of black and white thinking gets you a little defensive, 
fantastic. Let's keep on pushing into that. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, should remove themselves from the throne. Uh, But for him who died for them and was raised again. There's a quote I want to share from an author named Paul Tripp in a book called Lead. This is a book that the staff is reading. We're always reading something to kind of sharpen our understanding of the gospel and what it means to lead in a church. And and this this, uh, quote from the rightly named book Lead says, Sin is self-focused, self-absorbed, self-defensive, and self-aggrandizing. Selfish in the purest sense of what the word means. So long as there there are artifacts of sin still resident in our hearts, we will be vulnerable to the temptation to make life about us. What we want, what we think we need, and what makes us content and comfortable. My default idol is the idol of self. Each of us wants the world to revolve around ourselves. Let's be honest. If we could, we would. If we could have the whole world revolve around us, we would. Now, we don't, we, we don't, we know that that's not possible, but to the extent that, that we don't cause too much harm to other people, right, we would accept a world that revolves around us. Our natural bent is for the world to satisfy our needs first rather than to be a servant of Christ, and, and being, which means being a servant of the world and putting the needs of others before our own. I, I think that it's appropriate to say that the human heart is its own kingdom and king, which is why Jesus' claim of authority over us can make us defensive. It's why we try to, it's why we so often try to neuter the message of the gospel to be not a message of, of grace, but actually to, to be a message of works. Because if we can believe it and make, make faith all about what we do, what it becomes is that you can just act in moral and ethical ways and do religious things without ever having to submit to Christ without ever having to give up the sovereignty of our hearts, so long as you just do the right things. Look at King Herod. News of a new king becomes threatening to the part of him and to the part of us that has grown comfortable on the throne. In fact, God tells us that submitting to Christ is so counterintuitive and and so opposed to our selfishness that that without the aid of the Holy Spirit, it's totally impossible. Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. To which you might say, somebody had a bad day, right? No one. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. It's like you read this, it's kind of like, well, don't I? I know people who do. Well, well, you can, here's the thing that, that Paul is kind of getting at, and, and, um, and, and this is where we're going to kind of bring us, bring us home today with this message, is that there is a world of difference between seeking God and submitting to God. In fact, I would argue that, that you could seek God your whole life and never know what it means to truly submit to God. Here's two ways of kind of understanding this. This is kind of my own, my own thinking here. But we're going to talk about gold digging and buffet Jesus. All right. First off, gold digging. If someone, if someone you call somebody a gold digger, eh, 
debatable whether you should, but regardless, someone who's a gold digger is someone who gets into a relationship for the monetary benefits, right? They, they marry rich or they date rich or, or whatever so that that person can supply them with all of the things that they can't afford themselves. They can be the giver of benefits. And it means that the relationship is entirely instrumental, not intrinsic. It's, it's all about what you get. So is the case for someone who seeks God but never submits to God. You can seek God without submitting to God by being in it for the benefits, loving all the benefits, and enjoying the benefits of following God and seeking after him. However, we can still kind of pull up and allow the benefits to empower even or benefit uh, our selfish hearts rather than submitting our selfish hearts to God. Now, the second one, buffet Jesus. This is where, you know, you go to a buffet. The great thing about a buffet uh, is, uh, you know, you get to pick what you want. And, and equally important, pick what you don't want. I'm a picky, kind of picky person. I don't want my tomatoes and mushrooms. I also don't like things to, to touch. Okay, so buffets work well for me because I can, I can kind of funnel. I can filter things out and create space. Anyway, so is the case with God at times, if we're being honest where we create a God, create a creator um, of our own liking. We, we, we craft him and form him and, and put the characteristics in him that we prefer, and we leave off the ones that we don't like. So, do you want your God to be loving? Yeah! Double portion of loving God, right? How about full of mercy? Absolutely. What about, what about someone who, what about a God who shows mercy to your enemies? Maybe when you come back for seconds, right? What, what about a God who calls you to pick up your cross and, and carry it and follow him daily? What about a God who, who allows at times suffering in, in, to occur in our life and we can still proclaim him through that? Exclude, right? So we produce a God that is fit to our own comfort, that is fit to our own appetite, that we would prefer to worship, and we, and we disregard the authority of Scripture, because after all, that God in Scripture, boy, some of the things he says, that's tough to follow. Maybe we'll consider those things if we come back for seconds. But in both cases, these motivation, both of these motivations, we try to find uh, Jesus, but not the Jesus that, is, that wants to be king over our hearts. Instead, we create a God of our own liking to mask our hostility and resistance to the supremacy and authority of Christ as an absolute uh, uh, one and only king. The truth and cost of Jesus' kingship turns the story of Herod from being a person that we point at to a person that actually represents our wandering hearts that represents the ways that we still need every day the refining power of the Holy Spirit to transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Uh, Herod represents the fact that, that all of us, to a certain extent, would rather tame God than be tamed by him. And yet Jesus' life, beginning from the day he was born, shows us a path that leads out of our denial of kingship. While overcoming selfishness is impossible until the day we are fully glorified uh, with, with Christ in heaven, uh, Jesus has stepped in. In fact, bef before he stepped in, he stepped down. 
He stepped down off of his throne, off of his, his glory, off of his, his comfort in heaven, and he stepped down to live with us, to live among us, to be able to relate to us, to understand us. And after he stepped down, he stepped up, but not back up to that throne. He stepped up onto a cross. And rather than being crowned with a crown of glory and gold and, and, and jewels, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. But as he stepped up, he stepped in and stepped in for our place so that the effects of sin and the consequences of sin would not be on our shoulders but would hang on him. Because here's the thing about, about God and his love and, and sin is that sin is that which God hates the most. God hates nothing more than sin. But what does he love more than anything else? You. So what happens with a God who is faithful to his promises, including his promise to defeat sin and destroy sin and have it be no more, when that sin which he hates most is something that is a part that of which he loves most? What is God to do if he is faithful to his promise to destroy sin? In our place, he destroyed his own son. In our place, he came and died so that we would not have to experience that, but instead, by grace through faith, we'd be able to share in the resurrection of Jesus and know what it means to have eternal life, both in the future, but also eternal life now, to have the life that God promises us to have it now. And one of the ways that we have it now is through the community of the church and by being welcomed into the family of God where we are called brothers and sisters of Christ, we are called sons and daughters of God the Father, we are called princes and princesses of the kingdom. And as members of God's family, we get invited also to the family table. And so when we celebrate communion as a church, we celebrate as the family of God, remembering the work that God has done in you and in us. And as we journey through this life together, we journey through it not alone, but beside one another and being led by Christ. So as we come to the table, please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this gift. Thank you that, thank you God that despite our failings and our imperfections and the ways that we admittedly seek after you but fail to submit, God, you are there with your grace. You are there to step in God, you stepped down, you stepped up, and you stepped in. And through you, we can be called righteous. Through you, we can be known by God and know God. So Jesus, thank you for this gift. And God, prepare our hearts for your coming, your arrival of Christmas. And prepare our hearts for when you will come again one day. And until that day, Jesus, help us to resist the darkness. Give us your spirit to resist that darkness, awaiting the day when, when your light will chase away that darkness. Where all of the evil will be made right, the wrongs will be brought to their proper, proper order. Where injustice will be corrected with your ultimate divine justice. So Jesus, thank you for these promises that we hold on to and we remember through the Advent season. And join us today at this table, your table. In your name we pray, amen. We confess that Jesus Christ has come into this world as a 
human baby in a manger. We also confess that one day he will come again in his full glory. And in this in-between time where there is already a presence of Christ, but not yet his fullness, uh, Christ has given us this meal as a way to remember him and to understand that he is present for us even now. And so it was on the night that Jesus betrayed that he took bread and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it was later in that same meal that he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For anyone joining us at home, you are welcome to join us in communion as well. In fact, any person who has made a faith commitment to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is welcome here at this table because this truly is the Lord's table, not our table, not Rosewood's table. Uh, this is the Lord's table. In a moment, the elders will distribute the elements to you in your seats. Once you receive them, just hang on to them, uh, because after everyone has received those elements, we will pray, and then we'll, we'll receive, we'll, we'll eat, and we'll drink together. So come, all things are now ready. <laughs>
join me in prayer? God, you are one who never leaves us alone. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. God, this meal is a physical reminder of the invisible reality of your presence with us. At times, you are silent. At times, you feel so far away. But God, you are always there with us. And the confirmation of this is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who after he ascended, sent his Holy Spirit so that we would never be alone, that in our most challenging times, we would be comforted and that we would be encouraged as we journey through this life. God, forgive us of our sins. Make us pure and remind us that the slate is wiped clean, that we are separated as far from our sins as the east is from the west. So that as we join together for this meal, we do so with clean hands and clean hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.